welcome to the Accelerators Podcast. We are radiation oncologists Matt Spraker, Simil Parikh, and Anna Brown, and we're bringing you news and views with guests from all over the field. The discussions on this show are not medical advice, and they represent our own opinions and not those of our employers. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to the Accelerators Podcast. We have a very exciting episode today. This is Matt Spraker. I'm a radiation oncologist in Denver, Colorado, one of the co-hosts of the Accelerators Podcast, and uh, the others... I'm Sam Olprake, uh, Medical Director at Lake Huron Medical Center in Port Huron, Michigan, and I'm glad to be here with you guys. Hi there. I'm Anna Brown. I'm one of the other Accelerators co-hosts. I'm a radiation oncologist in community practice in Wisconsin. I'm actually coming coming to you today from the West Coast. I'm in California. Well, you're where I am. So I'm Joanne Liu. I'm a community radiation oncologist practicing in in Eureka, California, which is uh, in the Redwood country, about five hours north of San Francisco on the Pacific coast. And I'm a staff radiation oncologist at St. Joseph Hospital, which is part of the Providence Health System and uh, have been here for 16 years. Awesome. And thank you so much for joining us today. We're like really excited to do this one because I think that, um, you know, we wanted to make sure that we let our listenership kind of like know about you. You've done a ton for our field. Um, I wanted to say congratulations, by the way, for being elected uh, FASTRO this year. I saw that you're on the list and it's very well-deserved. And you, it seems like the last couple of years, you've had a, a few uh, kind of recognitions for all the stuff that you've done. So that's that's really nice. Um, I was wondering if we could, and, and this episode is going to focus a bit on the fact that you are a community radiation oncologist and you've been so active in advocacy, because that is something that, in my opinion, is a bit unique. And um, there are a lot of community radiation oncologists out there that are like seem to be becoming more and more vocal about the field and wanting to advocate for themselves and their patients. And you're an excellent role model for that. So I'd, I'd like to kind of feature that a little bit. Maybe we can just start a little bit. Can you share with us your history, kind of like how you got to where you are now, um, you know, uh, how you landed in this area, and then the things that you, you've kind of done to become involved with policy and advocacy? Sure. Thanks. And uh, thanks for having me on, on the show. It's, it's, it's an honor to be here. I um, kind of came to radiation oncology somewhat uh, by accident. I was actually on the the Hemonc wards at uh, during a my third year of medical school and my attending was one of those old school radonks that also happened to be board certified in hematology oncology. Uh, there's a few of those that are still floating around and he would, um, for a few months out of the academic year, uh, staff the, the, uh, oncology wars. And it was, uh, Dr. Terry Herman who, um, had uh, trained at Stanford and spent some time at the joint center before becoming chair of uh, radiation oncology at the University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. Um, and he had kind of eyed me and said, you really need to do a rotation in radiation oncology. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm kind of interested in, you know, cardiology, nephrology, or, or, or even hemoc. And so, uh, so I kind of, I, I didn't take it really seriously at the time. And then I kept running into him at the gym. You know, he was a really fit guy, really, uh, uh, paid a lot of attention to personal appearance. So I'd see him at the gym and he'd say, join, where am I going to see you? And this happened several times where I finally gave in and said, okay, I'm, I'm going to spend a month with you. And so this was during my fourth year of med school. And by that time, I'd already kind of uh, uh, made a decision as to what uh, direction I was going to take. And so 
that month was transformative. It really opened my eyes into what radiation oncologists did. And this was this was like 1998. Um, and you know, IMRT was 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 uh, was viewed as a novel technology. Um, they just started doing SRS and SBRT. We had something called the Peacock system for those of you that that um, uh, may be old enough to remember. But they were still doing port films. There was no such thing as IGRT back then. But it was still fascinating. Treatment planning was was CT based, and so there was a lot of knowledge of clinical medicine and uh, gross anatomy that you had to depend on in order to practice the field. So it wasn't the super specialized uh, field that I thought that radiation oncology was. But uh, by that time, I'd already committed to uh, interviewing for internal medicine residency. So uh, uh, Dr. Herman had, had said. Uh, fine, go ahead and do your internal medicine residency and come back here and do radiation oncology as a fellowship. <clears throat> and he had already had about three radiation oncology residents that were already fully trained in internal medicine and had also taken their boards. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll follow the same pathway. So I went ahead and did my uh, full internal medicine residency at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, Texas. And during that time, uh, met, met my future wife uh, while she was doing her residency she ended up becoming an allergist, and uh, and because of her, I stayed on as emergency medicine faculty for two years at the oh. uh, medical branch in Galveston, um, and begged Dr. Herman, "Can you hold my spot for a year?" And then uh, after that year went by, enjoyed emergency medicine so much, I said, "Can you hold it for one more year?" And he was able to do that for me again. So it wasn't until 2003 that I started my internal medicine residency or my radiation oncology residency when I was supposed to start in 2001. So I ended up finishing um, uh, training in 2007. And the program that I was in was the type of program where you would learn by doing. We did a ton of procedures. Um, attendings were more hands-off. So residents pretty much ran the program. Um, and I did a ton of brachytherapy. And so by the time we were done with our training, we were very confident in our clinical skills and I was ready to go into practice. Um, and so uh, in terms of finding where I was gonna practice, I was very open to anything. I was interested in academics. I didn't do much research as a resident, but we did have a few talented residents like, uh, uh, like uh, Clifton Dave Fuller, who's now at MD Anderson and Sam Wong, who was at uh, OHSU, who were masters at armchair research and being able to use statistical packages to basically be able to churn out data from databases. <clears throat> so we actually uh, were able to present a lot of uh, abstracts despite our being a smaller department that was underfunded and didn't do a lot to support residents. We got really good at depending on industry to fund our journal clubs, help us buy textbooks, send us to meetings, um, we got to know all the pharmaceutical reps very well. And you couldn't blame us for conflict of interest because we didn't prescribe any of these, these medicines. Right. <laughs> uh, and so, um, uh, so we learned to look elsewhere for support when we, if we couldn't get it from our, from our own department. But as, as far as teaching, we did have really good quality attendings that uh, taught us a lot, spent time with us. Obviously, uh, no attending is the same. So there are certain individual ones that really stood out um, compared to others. And so by the time we were done, uh, you know, we we were uh, very, very ready to go out and practice. We didn't get that involved with 
uh, you know, governance. So none of us were involved with Arrow that much. Um, I really wasn't involved with any organizations for the first five years of practice. So uh, I wasn't part of any early career or young physician group. Most of my involvement in organized medicine happened um, a few years after being practiced, after passing my boards, settling down, you know, uh, taking care of my kids and, and uh, also uh, kind of getting myself situated in the community. It's really interesting. You have like, you you have probably one of the most interesting paths to radiation oncology I've ever heard of all the people in this field. I actually didn't know that about you. Um, you know, people, it's not uncommon to have people kind of have unusual paths, but that's, that's a long and windy, very interesting path. And then one thing you mentioned that I actually had forgotten since training is I had a couple of um, attendings that were uh, like, you know, the past generation, I guess is the best way to put it. And they actually lamented that, you know, there was a change where um, residents and radiation oncology had a lot more autonomy than they do today. Um, and I think that was actually like, that was right. That was a change in the regulation and the way that, you know, like supervision was and things like that. And, um, and, you know, I wasn't planning to ask you about this, but I just curious, do you feel like that that uh, sort of takes away a little bit from the training? Because um, that was the sentiment in my training program is that, you know, nowadays you don't get to do as much independently. And so when you leave, there's concerns or questions about if people are as quote, as quote, uh, sorry, quote, as ready to be an independent radiation oncologist as they might have been in 1998 or 2005 uh, before they had some change to the supervision rules. Right. I, I think uh, that that, uh, that is true. Uh, and, and I also uh, would, would say that uh, for for my particular program, since my chief resident was actually uh, trained and boarded in internal medicine, there uh, and actually had spent two years as a hospitalist before he became a, a radiation oncology resident. I think his confidence in, in managing clinical issues, even outside of radiation oncology, uh, was was evident. So that if there was ever any any problem that uh, that any of us as trainees had, we could always, we could always go to him. Um, and uh, uh, and obviously our, our chairman, who was actually boarded in both medical hemonc and radiation oncology, you know, was definitely a, a, a large body of knowledge in terms of clinical management of the patient as a whole. Yeah, I was going to actually also reflect on what Matt has said that, uh, yeah, joint even after working with you, you know, ACR and Keros, I never knew this um, that you had this background in internal medicine and emergency medicine. I find it really interesting. Um, and I wonder, was there any, um, I guess, with your background in those other fields that kind of think really broadly about like system processes and, you know, maybe quality improvement to, you know, perhaps a greater degree than um, or, or just a different perspective, a different degree than radiation oncology. Do you, do you think that's informed or kind of influenced your um, willingness or motivation to be involved in like organized medicine and, you know, like ACR, Keros, those organizations? Yeah, they definitely did play a role. Having, uh, you know, been in an emergency medicine uh, type of environment and understanding how patients present and, um, and also having had the the clinical, uh, you know, longitudinal and primary care background uh, certainly helps inform, you know, me as to what patients go through in their um, journey into getting cancer care. Because uh, sometimes their their first contact with the medical system in getting cancer care is the emergency department, unfortunately. Um, so, so those those are those are things that uh, you know uh, gave me some. Uh, some stimulation to get involved with uh, organized medicine. Um, 
But I think the the, the one thing that really uh, propelled me into health policy was actually the, the meaningful use initiative that got shoved down our throat uh, in terms of uh, the uh, the electronic health record uh, incentive program that was put on by Medicare. It was when um, as a radiation oncologist in my, my independent practice where we had to do everything on our own, um, we had we had the EHR incentive program. We also had the e-prescribe program where uh, we were required to um, uh, electronically prescribe uh, you know, our, our medications. And if we didn't, we'd be penalized. Um, a lot of vendors came out to us and said, hey, we, we have a solution for you. Um, fork over fifty thousand dollars and we'll uh, we'll make it happen and i was like this this can't be right so that that's when i started appealing towards our uh, medical organization saying what can you do to help us and that's when i understood and appreciated how organizations like my local medical society the california medical association um and uh even astro and acr you know have people working on issues like this and they want to hear from people in the trenches that are facing these issues um, because they, they have the experts that can review these policies and uh, help you connect with those people that can help. Yeah, no, that's just the thing, um, joined to your point about um, kind of the, the resources that like organized medicine provides, right? As like a, you know, I'm sure in your kind of busy rural, primarily rural clinic, you know, as mine is, there's barely enough resources just to get the clinical work done. And then you talk about, you know, beyond that, addressing, you know, social determinants of health or other disparities, um, that gets to a level where we really need kind of more structured support. Yeah. I mean, Joy and I, I, I'm a few years ahead of you from red, end of Red Hog training. So I, I lived through all of that, what you're saying. How about trying to convince farmers to join the portal, you know, that, that you had to have a percentage of them join that portal. How about convincing your local private practice docs that they had to have the messaging system in place? Uh, you know, please just send us one message just to show that this is active so we can collect our 0.3% or whatever. Right. So it sounds like you got to stage two of meaningful use from what you told me. And I, and I tell you, it was, it was comical. A lot of practices set up a kiosk in their waiting room so that as patients were leaving, they say, oh, hey, why don't you come here? We'll set you up with a username and password, and we need you to log into the system so that we can get credit for engaging with our patients for stage two. Yeah. I mean, it, it was bizarre. And I, I think what you're saying about, you know, contacting local people, it helped us too. Like we, we talked to Senator Dodd. We, we were connected with Steny Hoyer who was from our district and we were showing him like, we are a very different environment than what's going on in Baltimore and Bethesda. We, we are barely getting these people in, uh, with their huge lung masses. And then on the side, you're like, Hey, can you log into this portal? Um, and you know, for federal money, basically that we've already earned, this is not like something that we're, where we're getting as bonus. Basically it was like, we earned this money. And I think that, you know, I can't say like individually, you know, but it's collectively those people like us who made the point, like, gosh, we're just trying to do our job to provide medical care to these patients they don't need portals. They, they, you know, some people do, they don't, you know, we don't need to do your HIPAA compliant messaging because that's not the type of community are. We pick up the phone and call each other because our medical oncologists might be our neighbor or live in our subdivision. Um, and we, we know that these are, these are not like 
uh, we're not at an academic center with somebody from 50 miles away and having to use email and having to send PDFs and things like that. It's a very different environment and understand the people. Uh, I, I hate something like that, you know, like but it, the people in DC and San Francisco that are making these programs um, and designing the software and not understanding of people in Humboldt County or St. Mary's County uh, who are actually living uh, this nightmare that was occurring for those few years, getting to step two, the amount of meetings we had. I mean, every week, every week. But, uh, you know, it's it's really interesting to hear that you were experiencing the same thing, the frustration of just wanting to get through the day and take care of these people. Um I'm continuing to be in rural medicine. Um, do you want to talk about some of the challenges that you have as a radiation oncologist? Um, I'm curious if they're similar to mine uh, as sure. far as taking care of our cancer patients. Yeah, and particularly in, in, in rural settings where you don't have the advantage of a, a lot of, uh, of the specialties on board. I think in um, in a lot of rural communities, there's been a real challenge in, in uh, recruiting and retaining medical oncologists. And so, you know, when I first got here, you know, we had an independent uh, internal medicine group um, that had three long-term medical oncologists. And of course we had our own independent practice. And um, the and obviously over time, it got harder and harder to support, you know, independent practices. So uh, the delivery of, of chemotherapy was not as profitable as, as it was before. So ultimately this practice ended up being bought out by the St. Joseph Health System, and then ultimately St. Joe's had merged with uh, Providence Health, so it became a, a you know vertically integrated clinic. Our radiation oncology practice man- managed to stay independent. You know, we're still hospital based, but still um, independent contractors to provide professional services. Um, and so I noticed that there was a change in the um, uh, the ability to, to keep the medical oncologists. They weren't enjoying the autonomy that they had, um, and I think that led to uh, some of them retiring early, some of them leaving the area. And then after that, there was just this rotating door of locums, people that would come, leave, you know, within one or two years. So what that did was that kind of put us as radiation oncologists at the forefront of being the leaders of oncology care, because we were the only ones that were, that had any institutional memory or any longevity in the community and had relationships with the people uh, that that were here. So- Yeah, Yeah, the the rotating door, I sorry to interrupt you, but like the other aspect that we are seeing here is it's a lot of visa people, right? Like, and it's, it's glorious for them. They get a chance to improve their lives from, from third world countries to getting to live in America and be a doctor, but they don't want to live in Port Huron. Mm -hmm. They may not want to live in Eureka. They may want to be in Cerritos, you know, Uh, they may want to be in the Bay or, you know, South Bay or whatever. And, um, that's what we're having a hard time. It's like they, they, some of them end up falling in love with rural practice and sticking around, but many want their community and people like them um, right. and their values. You know, it's, it's, you know, people like you that actually, well, you're American, but you know, it, what, what I mean, it's like, we, we may not have grown up in a rural area, but we can maybe find much more commonality. But if you need a Hindu temple, it may not be ideal uh, for right. your, for your life. And I, I, I don't, I feel sad every time they finish their, their visa time and then they decide to go to the city because it's like, oh, I loved working with you. Um, and you were great for our community. And it's, that's another difficult part retention. How about just basic specialty care? Do you, do you find yourself lacking in that occasionally or do you get, are you guys pretty well staffed with, um, specialty surgeons? 
we're, we're lucky to have uh, e, a really good quality EMT, neurosurgery, you know, general surgery. Um, uh, where we where we lack is uh, gynecology. We do have a couple uh, general gynecologists that are getting close to retirement, so we we definitely have have, have acute needs there. Um, and so uh, we lack pulmonology, we lack endocrinology. You know, these are uh, rheumatology. Those are those are areas that uh, uh, rural areas have a hard time recruiting, and and it, financially, it's just very difficult to. Uh, to recruit and retain these people. But, but what that does, it puts more burden on the other specialties, particularly medical oncology, because then they're going to have to deal with the pulmonary issues, the, the, the renal issues. You know, we only have one nephrologist for this entire area and he's very pretty much limited his practice. And you, you, you think, you know, a medical oncologist really depends on a nephrologist on helping manage, you know, the, some of the renal toxicities of treatment. And without that, they're, they have to do a, a lot of that management on their own. Um, and so as radons, you know, we've stepped up in refilling meds that, um, uh, patients, uh, need because the primary care workforce is also very thin in this area. And there's a lot of dependence on, uh, mid-levels, um, and, uh, many of them, uh, may not feel comfortable managing complicated patients. So sometimes we kind of rely on our, our more broad medical knowledge to take care of these. One thing that I wanted to point out, and so this, I just wanted to, before we stray too far from it, um, you know, I'm, I'm, so I graduated in 2018. Um, I, I, I like to believe that I'm kind of similar to a lot of young radiation oncologists right now where you, you graduate, you know, pretty competitively, you join an academic institution, you train and your entire view of radiation oncology is like basically an academic department that may be very large and well-resourced. And, and, and then you might get into quality for the same reasons that all these people do. Right. Like, and, and when you're talking, I, I actually keep thinking about your publication about, about the ROAPM that you put out in journal of clinical oncology. We'll link to this in the show notes. And, you know, it's about our RAPM, which is no longer a relevant topic, but really what that paper is about is about an independent physician who has dealt with all of these mandates that have come down over the years with good intentions, right? I I, I don't think these are bad people. I think mean, these are people that are envisioning from their, uh, you know, ivory tower, so to speak, what will make medicine better across the country. But once you start to leave that department, you realize that medicine across the country is not a single thing. It's it's very different. And everything you're describing, I have an incredible appreciation for today, only from meeting people like you, doing some locums in a rural clinic, and then leaving the institution and now joining a, a practice that has a mix of employed and independent doctors. And there's unique challenges that I never even thought of before that you just don't see when you're at an institution that has every specialist. They all work for the same company. They all use the same chat app. It's like really easy to call up the nephrologist and ask him a question about your patient. That's just, I mean, even my, my company's very large, but we, you know, even that, because some of them are independent, it just makes it really hard to communicate like little stuff like that. And so I'd really encourage people to read your article and, you know, we do a lot of complaining on this show, but I think what people, what would be great would be for everyone to gain an appreciation that like you can come up with a quality metric or something that you want people to do. And in your head, it might help. But for some clinics, all you're doing is you're making them put a kiosk in their front in their front to make people sign up for the for the digital health thing or whatever. And then the separate thing that I think I've talked about with you before is that there's very little like expectation of anyone helping you with this. Right. So like these mandates come down 
Of course, you have business. I mean, this is, you know, it's America. One of the best things we have capitalism here and there's businesses that pop up that are willing to solve these problems for you, but usually for a lot of money because it's healthcare. And 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 the government, you know, is like, you can do this and we're going to pay you maybe a little bonus for doing it. But no one's like actually helping you, right? It's kind of just like a big system that's set up that imposes these rules on you and makes you, you kind of do it. So I, I think for the younger or like less experienced listeners that maybe have a more sheltered experience of radiation oncology that weren't around in 2005 and didn't see all these changes coming. That's where this really comes from. And I hope people do read that article because I think my favorite thing about it is that it is that narrative. It really drives home that experience that you've had over like what, 15 years, right? Of, of trying to implement all of these changes that, that have been sort of put on you uh, without really a ton of input from your, from your perspective. Yeah, so true. I, I, a lot of my involvement in organized medicine was based on my needs in dealing with these challenges of uh, the mandates coming down and trying to make sense of them and how to implement them. And so it, it was really, uh, you know, the result of a need that that kind of uh, propelled me in, into getting involved to try to fulfill uh, some of the uh, uh, the deficits I had in terms of health. So, um, you know, uh, I didn't necessarily get involved to just get involved. I got involved because I needed help. <laughs> and along the way, you know, you, you meet great people, you, uh, uh, you have some excellent experiences, you know, at, at, at the meetings, the conferences that you go to, and you just learn so much. And then, then it becomes, uh, you know, just a wonderful, uh, type of, uh, training leadership, uh, you know, uh, uh, networking experience, uh, you know, along the journey of trying to seek help for you to deal with the challenges you face in day-to-day practice. Yeah. And I think, and, and I'll admit that like, for me, I mean, how advocacy is often pitched to me is like, you should do your part and donate or go to advocacy day and be a body to help elevate the, you know, the visibility of radiation oncology, which is important. Right. But like, it's like the minute you start to like get a sense of what radiation oncology is really like across the country, the variability and so many with issues that you may never see or think about if you're in a large department that's all employed. Um, and then it, it just takes on a new, you know, a kind of a new meaning. Right. And so so something I'm trying to do personally, just as a young radiation oncologist, is trying to find my footing and how I can best advocate for my patients in the environment that I'm in. Yeah. Well, what was so powerful about your article, Joanne, Um, because we were all kind of pushing at it from many different angles. Mm-hmm. And I think that when, after reading yours, you, the strength of it was it wasn't about the money. It wasn't about case rates anymore. In fact, you were somewhat positive about case rates. And I think you still are. And I think I am in certain ways. Sure. It was truly about the administrative burden and that like, you know, I'm not one to quote Ronald Reagan, but these words of like, we're the government and we're here to help you being the scariest words in the English language. And that's what it felt like, because it's like, hey, we're trying to help you guys, but you're going to have to do all this extra work and earn a little bit of less money. And we can't really say that this is improving patient outcomes, but this is this is what you have to do. And it was a very poignant response. And it helps us sidestep this idea that we make too much money or we're fighting for more money, especially recently with this Washington Post article. Um, and I, I think that's why yours was so strong. That's how I took it. And I, was, and I also looked at it as like, um, I would compare it to one one other thing is like, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, when we were talking about gay marriage, 
it's like you needed that personal experience. You needed that gay friend who was getting, who's like frustrated they couldn't be married or like, you know, despondent about it. And I, I look at it, it's not quite the same, but it's like, ah, this guy working hard, treating 25 patients is telling you on his knees, no more, no more paperwork, no more paperwork. I just want to get through the day and take the best care of my patients. I think it changed hearts and minds because of the approach you took. Um, and I, I want to thank you for that. And I also want to say that that's, that's how I want to look at the problem because I can't, it's it, this new rocker. It's not about the money. Like I do the model, we're going to be fine. It's not about the money, but there's other issues at, at heart that we need to think about. We're not just dollar focused people. You aren't, I'm not, I don't think we have been. Um, and so, I mean, we're going to make rocker better or, you know, they'll make a program that's better if it's not rocker, but we're, we're getting there because of people like you, we're narrowing it down, right? Like each iteration is going to be a little bit better. And then finally, it's not going to be a crap sandwich. It's going to be a filet and we're going to all get behind it and be like, yes, we want this. Yeah. Well, you guys are really generous in your assessment. You know, I think, uh, when, when I, when I decide to write the piece, I, I, my main motivation was that. I wanted to get to those policymakers and just let them see, you know, what those people in the trenches are going through. Because sometimes I, I really wonder how well do they really know what's going on? You know, have they have they spent a day with the radiation oncologist? Pro- probably not. You know, their, their choice of the the medical director for the ROAPM was somebody from a PPS exempt hospital. Um, and, you know, none of the people that were at the table to design this were people that were necessarily affected by the consequences of their, their decisions. Yeah, and I think that's a key point there is in kind of what, you know, some people that, you know follow me on Twitter know I've been kind of vocal against it, but um, not against, I would say we need, we need all opinions to matter, right? And like the appropriate stakeholders at the table. And like, I'm actually, you know, personally involved in a lot of committees and a lot of organizations. My goal is kind of unifying and coming together on common ground but certainly an alternative payment model needs to involve the stakeholders who will be directly affected, which then will translate to patient quality of care and ability to continue taking care of patients. And to Simmel's point, like a busy community oncologist, someone who's just doing their best to like keep the doors open, keep the lights on and take care of patients. Like that's the type of person that needs to have input, um, but may not have been invited to the table or in the room. So can I ask, um, you know, you, you've done a lot with societies and, and then the state medical society, which I'm particularly interested in because, again, like, you know, I can be the sheltered one on this podcast. I'm relatively recent to the field and came through the traditional academic pathway. Um, but, you know, you hear a lot about doing advocacy day, right? So, like, there's different advocacy days in our field. You can do that with any of the medical societies. That's kind of very prominent front of mind for people, maybe less so is working with a state medical society, or I'd actually ask you, like, have you had um, representatives visit your clinic? And are you finding that these more local efforts are things that you find, or how do you find those to be sort of helpful to achieve your goals um, as an advocate for the field? Yeah, I, I think the uh, the state and county medical organizations are great bridges to connect you with, with legislators. So, I haven't had the luck of having any of my state legislators visit my clinic yet, although I have an open invitation to them all the time. But I have met with them face to face when they've come to our medical society meetings. In fact, I'm meeting with one of my state senators this this afternoon for coffee. Um, and you know, there's a lot of um, you know health issues outside of radiation oncology 
they're important for us as radiation oncologists to engage in because what ends up affecting you know, primary care or any other specialty is going to affect us downstream too. So if we're going to be united within the house of medicine, uh, I think it's also important to just kind of kind of look up and just see the, the horizon of, of, you know, healthcare in general and practice and, and to let people see that as a radiation oncologist, I'm not just stuck down in the basement. You know, I'm also concerned about the, the atmosphere and the environment of, of healthcare in general, because um, if it's not good overall, it's not going to be good for us as a specialty either. Um, and so those are, those are opportunities that radiation oncologists sh- should get more involved in um, to, uh, uh, you know, uh, engage, support their colleagues as also, and in return, you'll get support too. And, and a good example, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've seen you tweet a lot about the California legislation about mid-level and scope of practice, right? That's like a really great example about what you're talking about. I know that we, um, I, I'm worried we may have this in our field at some point, but it's not really a radiation oncology topic. We don't have a mid-level scope of practice argument happening right now. Maybe in radiology it has, but this seems to be pretty prominent in California. And I've seen you've been a pretty uh, uh, vocal kind of advocate um, for that issue. And that's exactly what you're talking about, right? Is like it, it, it doesn't affect your clinic, but it does affect your patients. Absolutely. And and it, it may be making inroads into radiation oncology too, because we know that a lot of large academic centers, you do have PAs that are doing contouring and functioning a lot like residents, you know, in in these uh in these clinics. And so the main uh, crux of the matter is um the training between a physician, regardless of the specialty, and that of a mid-level is so vastly different. <clears throat> They're not the same. And so uh, there's there's always going to be the um, uh, uh, a difference in the level of medical knowledge of appreciation in that, you know, when you don't have the knowledge, you don't know what you don't know. And as physicians, having gone through a comprehensive, uh, you know, journey of training, we, we, we're more aware of what our limitations are. So we know when we need to call for help, when we need to seek, seek a specialist and where our fund of knowledge ends. Um, and, but what gets me um, the most is how there's a lack of truth in advertising because so many times a, uh, a patient will say, uh, oh yeah, this, this is my doctor. Um, and, it, and that doctor turns out to be a nurse practitioner or, or a PA. And even one of our local newspapers once had, uh, still has the um, uh, the best doctor in in our county. Well, that the person that was elected and got that spot was actually a PA. Um, I wouldn't call that person a doctor. Um, identify that person for what they are, and we value their service. They are an integral part to the medical team. But let's not confuse patients, and not let's not fool people into thinking that there's something that they're not. Yeah. And that's a really good point just to jump in here. Um, so actually I've seen like on the nurse practitioner side, um, like nursing nurse practitioners that will go back and earn their like doctorate of nursing. And then literally patients will call them doctor, but they don't understand like the fundamental difference in training. And I would say, at least in my experience, like there's definitely a role for, you know, mid-level providers. And this is something like the AMA talks about all the time. There's a role for mid-level providers, but yeah, let's not conflate what roles, you know, those, those individuals have and the extensive training that we've done, right? We have a board certification that we did four exams for that, you know, a PA with two years of training is just woefully inadequate to make the types of high-level complex decision-making 
that we need to do. And right, they can maybe do like 80% of the clinical work, but like the really complex stuff, like, and, and also uh, to your point, join about like how the primary care and other specialty cares, if those, if those are not at the level necessary, it actually directly obstructs our ability to care for patients. If patients aren't worked up in like the pulmonary clinic and then they come to us, you know, without a PET scan or without a brain scan, then we're, you know, essentially then I do like two consults for every patient or, you know, that, that's what ends up happening. And then it's just a waste of resources when the patients are appropriately filtered through. And that's where like pipelines and kind of guidelines can help. Of course, NC scan is you know, wonderful. Um, but, but yeah, specifically to the point of like you know, nurse practitioners, MPAs and the scope of practice, it's, it's, you know, certainly, you know, yeah, they may not be able to do exactly what we do, but, but there are concerns there. And so that's where organized medicine, like AMA, ACR, you know, they have like policies in place to actually advocate on the Hill, you know, speak to, you know, um, congressional staffers um, and, and congressmen um, about kind of these issues. Yeah. And so I think like for me, the, you know, and this, this is, I was kind of using it as an example. I think that the point though, that we can learn from you, Join is like that you, you, you know, you should not feel like you could only comment on radiation oncology. We actually are very well trained. We have lots of, you know, training in specific for oncology. And, um, and I think that we can be strong advocates for the entire cancer center. And so you, you've had a, you've given like kind of a nice example of that. And I think that, um, it's definitely something that I hope people can, can follow. So um, I want to make sure we leave enough time because I know that Simul crafted a lightning round for you, which I think is, is uh is awesome and so um i don't know if do we want to i don't know joy do you have any do you, before we dive into that do you have any like kind of words of advice for you know a lot of our listeners are residents or early career physicians and um you know one goal we have is we want people to start getting involved in advocacy a lot more than we kind of see it's a very broad term do you have advice about like you know how people can start carving their path sure um you know it's never too late because I, I consider myself a late bloomer. I wasn't really involved during residency. I didn't do much in my early career. You know, when, when I, uh, you know, I joined my practice, I got partnership in two years. What more did I need? You know, I, I basically achieved the pinnacle of what I've been training for my, my, my whole life. And so a few years into practice, you know, when, when things start getting hairy in terms of these mandates that you all were, were talking about, that's when I started calling on organized medicine. And that's what kind of looped me in and got got me involved and so you don't have to wait as late as i did or wait for a problem to occur before you call on organized medicine you know organized medicine can be fun it's a great way to meet people network um it's 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 what makes my rural practice interesting you know i i have two other partners i work with but i'm not in a huge department where there's a lot of stuff going on so you know it's it's fun to be able to to leave the area go go meet with other colleagues and they don't have to be radiation oncologists. I mean, um, you know, the uh, one, the past president of the Association of Community Cancer Centers, uh, Dr. Penberthy, was actually a radiation oncologist. You know, so there, there, there are a lot of opportunities in healthcare related, even non health care related organizations. If you want to be the president of your mountain biking, you know, organization for the state, why not? You know, um, you know, th- these are all things that we can get leadership training on. Um, I think. Uh, you know, one thing that a former mentor uh, told me uh, in internal medicine said, you know, 90% of success is just showing up. And so whenever there's a call for involvement, um, you know, just show up, put a smile on your face and and just say, what what, what can I do to help? Um, I don't think anybody's out to get you. Um, but I think sometimes when we feel excluded um, from things, often it's just oversight, you know, and people just, it just 
escape their mind. I've, I've rarely come across a situation where somebody consciously says, I don't want this person. Uh, that, that's, that's very rare. So um, I would say, you know, uh, going with an open mind and that getting involved with multiple organizations can be synergistic. Sometimes you may have a bad experience with one organization. You get involved with another organization and you sometimes see some of the same people in these other organizations and there's some synergy and overlap. And then guess what? Your relationship with that other organization starts to improve because you've made some networking and some people with connections to leadership in those other organizations without getting into too many specifics. And that's, so, yeah, yeah. That's, I said, that's a great point because you are that person. <laughs> I see you in every room and every organization regardless. And you, you've been really a, a great citizen in, the, in, the, in that respect. So, yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to highlight a, another um, point that um, you kind of brought up uh, on a funny note, like, you know, president of mountain biking club, but that's actually a great way, especially for like community radiation colleges, you know, which is a lot of us in Radonk to just get engaged in the community and improve visibility of Radonk. So, I mean, in addition to like, you know, national orgs, like, yeah, like I'm volunteering in the community, you know, people see me like at, um, you know, volunteer events or like 5Ks. And then it's like, oh, you collaborate with other people and it's a fun thing. But then it's like, oh, what do you do? And, you know, you can just informally spread the word about Radonk. And then, who knows, maybe get connected with younger students. Like, we've got a branch, you know, um, in, in Wausau, actually, um, of all places of, of, like, MCW. And so there's actually med students that rotate through. So just, like, informal interactions or, like, happy hours, you know, that can lead to, like, you know, just fostering stronger relationships generally that then can have a positive, have, have, help radiation colleges have a positive impact on the community. And what I really wanted to tie in here was looping back to one of our recent previous episodes where we featured some medical students that had recently matched into Radonk. And actually one of those medical students was very interested in like the community engagement aspect of medicine generally, but specifically for radiation oncology, you know, whether it's through social media or, you know, getting involved in like local churches or local community organizations. So I think that's just a really important point to highlight. Like I love national orgs, not everyone does, but like even just community engagement at the grassroots level can be really powerful yeah. in terms of influencing communities. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and and on that point, particularly in rural communities, and Sonola can probably speak to this too, you're you are you automatically become a community leader. So you're you're definitely more likely to know on a first name basis your county supervisor, your chief of police, your your chief of fire, you know, all these community leaders, you know you have access to all of them. And, you know, I mean, I, I think if I had stayed in a, a large city, um, I wouldn't have been in a position where I could have lunch with the chief of police on a regular basis. I mean, we were, we were good friends, you know, how often does a radiation oncologist get to have lunch with the chief of police, you know, or, you know, their, their, their county supervisor, or I'm doing a jog and uh, one of the county supervisors truck and say, Hey, Hey, how's, how's it going join? You know, just sees you on the street. You know, th those are the kinds of experiences you get in smaller communities that it would have never happened if I stayed in a big city. Yeah. Okay. Not, not coincidentally, you've never gotten a speeding ticket. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I got a warning. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a warning. Okay. Yeah. yeah or like let, playing racquetball. <laughs> let's, uh, let's go to lightning round. Uh, uh, can I call you Mr. President? You are president of the Humboldt County Medical Society, or as of uh, as of last year, you were past president. Um, past president. My, my current role is a uh, president of the California Radiological Society. Okay, so uh, president times two, <laughs> and I had president. I had a dinner with the president of the Michigan Medical Society last night, so I'm uh, I'm getting surrounded by royalty here, which is great. Um, <laughs> well all right, we'll start with uh, first one. 
Texas versus California. Ooh, that's hard. I'm, I, um, I'd have to say I, I, I'm always a Texan, um, even though I was born in San Diego. But uh, all my formative years in education, everything was in Texas. Uh, and I am a diehard Aggie. And, okay. uh, you know, so Texas A&M versus University of Texas, it's Texas A&M Aggies all the way. All right. All right. I, uh, it's interesting. The, the two states couldn't be more different, but there are two states that we think about, you know, that we would potentially live in eventually down the road. I mean, for, for various reasons, very, again, very different. Um, I love, I love them both. Um, both have great tacos too. So it really fits yes. what I need. Worst thing about I am and best thing about I am. I am. Internal medicine. Sorry. Okay. I am, uh, I am. Uh, so uh, wor- worst thing about I am, um, probably not knowing when you were going to go home. Um, you know, I spent <laughs> a lot of time in the hospital and uh, certainly made use of the call rooms. So we really um, put truth to the term resident because we certainly were residents of the hospital. Um, and just the fact that there were just so many multiple organ systems that we had to deal with. So, and then if your census was, was uh, you know, in the two digits, uh, there was just a lot to keep up with. But I think intellectually it was really stimulating. The discussions were, were awesome. Uh, it was a great way to, uh, learn the stuff that I should have learned in medical school. That That's how I viewed my internal medicine residency. Yeah. Yeah. I love medicine. I, I didn't match. So I did a my first year intern year and I was reapplying, but I was no longer sad about the idea of not matching a second time because I knew what I wanted to do in internal medicine. I was very, I got asked to be chief already at, by the end of intern year. Uh, I exactly um, what you're saying the performance of I am was not fun to me talking about it, uh, was really fun. Chalk talks, differential diagnosis. Um, Absolutely. And I like armchair medicine, super fun. I think best thing about red Unk and worst thing about red Unk. Okay. So the, um, uh, that, that's interesting. So when I went from emergency medicine to, to rad um, it was a different kind of stress, uh, you know, from dealing with people that were critically ill, um, and working through the nights or uh, taking call to trying to compress a very busy day within business hours and fighting to um, uh, get on the treatment planning console, competing with other people for time on that, trying to get your attending to approve, um, you know, your plans. Uh, you know, uh, when the attending would say, um, uh, I need to go get a cup of coffee, I learned that I'm going to say, I'm going to follow you uh, when you get your cup of coffee because <laughs> I don't think you're coming back. Um but uh, me. I'm like one, that with my nerves. Yeah. Yeah. One of the best things uh, is is the is just the combination of technology and patient care. You know, I, I you know we are within the house of radiology, but we are the patient facing specialty. And mm-hmm. I have patients that I've been following for over ten years after yeah. after treatment. Um, you know, they they view me as almost like their family doctor because um, you know we we develop these. Uh, these interpersonal relationships with patients to where, you know, we really feel a connection to the community in addition to having access to all this wonderful technology, you know, space age stuff, 3d, you know, renderings of, of, of CT scans um, and uh, the things that we can do with radiation therapy these days with image guidance um, and marrying that together is, uh, is one of the primary things that say this, this is what I was meant to do. 
Yeah. Probably true for a lot of radiation oncologists, but something I'm always proud of and have been since day one is they're kind of viewed as like an oncologist that can get things done for the patient. And I think all of them have patients that reach out when they're just like, don't know what to do. They just call the radiation oncologist because they're willing to jump in and help get it done. And I'm very proud of that. Um, And so it's, it's kind of along the lines of what you said. Right. Yeah. To piggyback on what you said, um, I don't want to cheapen PCPs by saying where they're PCP during treatment, but there's stuff we get to bring to that. Like I, I'm now comfortable writing for a mild SSRI for a patient, which I wouldn't have done before, but I've talked to some of my IM friends and it's like friends and it's like, okay, I, this is sort of an adjustment disorder. This is sort of, you know, that, that we, we kind of help them through their process. I love that part too. I think I would tag onto the worst part of Red is, um, the catfish aspect of it, uh, we're tertiary and like, because of the way the world works, we are, we, we are captive to, uh, to our referrals, referring systems. Like I was in a dermatologist office yesterday and it's just like, feels like I'm groveling for patients, you know, like, you know, send me a couple, you know, that part really is kind of, I'm, I'm not that I've had to become that type of person. I'm not that type of person. Um, right. Right. Yeah. We'll come to a rural area and you'll never have to do that. We're, <laughs> we're, we're having to vet all our referrals to make sure they're appropriate. Yeah, no, we, we have a problem. We're a CON state that is kind of uh, unethical in some ways. And we have a two centers in a town that only needs one and it's become very competitive. Uh, you were in San Antonio, a uh, city that I, I'm not super familiar with, but one of their delicacies is one of my favorites. Uh, have you had a San Antonio puffy, puffy taco? I probably have. I, I probably didn't know it by that name. Yeah, I think they I, just call it taco down there. But yeah. essentially, they, they deep fry a corn, like a corn tortilla, and it puffs up. Right. Um, and then they fill it. And it's uh, We had it at our wedding in Michigan when uh, we have a place that has those here. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's nice biting into the bubble part. You know, it's a little, little bit of a surprise. Yeah. 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 That's a, that like extra crisp and crunch to it, which is kind of cool. I saw that you were the medical Jeopardy chair for... ARS. Um, who would you have suggested replace Alex Trebek? Well, I had, we already have somebody that, uh, uh, that we kind of designate as Alex Trebek. Uh, and that's actually, uh, Raymond Schultz from Varian since, uh, they, they've sponsored the event at the ARS meetings and his, uh, interestingly, his middle name is Alex. And he actually, if you've seen some of his pictures on Twitter, he has somewhat of a resemblance to him, just a, uh, just a, a, a slightly rounder version of Alex Trebek. I, I kind of meant like a celebrity or whoever to replace the actual Alex Trebek on oh, the wow. Jeopardy. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 that's a great question because um, uh, that, uh, that's a tough one. He's a, he's, a, he's a hard act to follow. Yeah, same, so, same answer, right? You'll just... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's a really fun event, by the way, um, at ARS for those who haven't gone. Like I went um, to ARS, I think for the first time in person, like right after finishing boards. And yeah, it was like great, like the Jeopardy thing. It was actually really fun. And like definitely Bill Small got like all the guy and stuff, which I was like to be expected. But then it was definitely like a fight to the death for it. Like other things. It was really fun though. And you did a great job. Thanks. It's fun to do. I'm looking for a, a successor because I, I can't do this forever. <laughs> uh you were a yearbook photographer uh i was yearbook too and i was yearbook photographer as well what was your yearbook called do you remember uh, it's called another way to wind um mm-hmm. kind of a beachy uh jamaican type theme 
Yeah, we did. I It was 96, I want to say. And we did like Living on the Edge. It was an Aerosmith song. Okay. And I look back and I've listened to that song recently. I was like, that doesn't mean anything. To <laughs> just like, I think the title was just kind of catchy. And, um, but we weren't really, we were kind of a bunch of nerdy kids and not really living on any sort of edge. Yeah. Um, Probably how to develop black and white film in print. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there was a little bit of that it was it was interesting and uh the, the framing of the pages and the layouting was really hard compared to now where you just drag and drop on, yeah. a, on a computer um humboldt county is one of those places like I've, I've archived on my list that i want to visit it's 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 funny that we many people say they're going to northern california when they go to san francisco and if you look on a map it's not quite northern california humboldt county is northern california um when I visit there, what restaurants do you suggest I go to? That we go to, actually. Oh yes, there? well, uh, uh, I think the number one place would be my place. Uh, but um, uh, of other um, places, there's uh, we. This area is like a foodie's paradise. You know, we as rural as this place is, we have a, a lot of diversity in ethnic food choices. We have Laotian, we have Cambodian, we have Chinese, we got you know sushi places. Um, we we have Jamaican. Uh, you know, and of course we've got all the, all the traditional, um, you know, types as well. We've got lots of vegetarian restaurants. Uh, there's, uh, there's, there's ramen places, plenty of clubs, lots of microbreweries. Um, you can, um, you can even buy a cow here if you wanted to, because we've got dairy farmers here. And if you can't store a, a whole cow, you can go into it with some families and, and they'll actually section off the different parts of the cow for you. So you can manage to fit what you buy into your, your, your freezer. So you you saying Laotian food first really jumps out at me. And I lived in the DC area for a long time, and there were several uh, Laotian restaurants, and it became one of our favorite foods. Their 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 take on papaya salad with like with salted crab is uh-huh. one of my favorite things in the world. Um, I, we don't have any in the Midwest that I can find. Seattle had a wonderful one, and um, I I can't wait to to try the ones over there. Well, um, let me know if you do. I have an open invitation to to, to you guys to come. And yeah. come in November, you'll get to taste fresh, fresh Dungeons crab. And that was the, uh, uh, one of the biggest reasons why I came up here was because of that. I love Dungeons crab. I love crab, Dungeons crab specifically. My wife, after the second pregnancy, got allergic to crab. Oh, no. Terribly allergic to crab. So we don't, we have to be super careful with seafood in general now. Um oh. You're making Man. a strong case for uh, sleepover at your house to have some yeah. crab and <laughs> accelerators. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Joanne, I was telling somebody today, like, uh, y- you know, we're not that much different in age, but um, you're who I want to be when I grow up. And I-, I hope a lot of community docs realize that there's a great path towards really making a difference in our specialty, more than just treating patients, which you do a lot of. Um, but there, there's more to it than that. So uh, I'm, I'm honored you, you think that because I think a lot of people feel that way about you. You know, <laughs> what, what you, you know, Matt and Anna have, have put together in terms of giving a voice for you know the rest of us, um, and, and and realize that you know the ivory towers aren't the only way to do things and get your your voices heard. And so uh, I'm really excited about your future projects, your new journal, you know, and. Uh, things like that. And, and uh, it's, 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 uh, it's gonna be interesting to see what the next few years bring for us. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Well, have a great rest of the day, man. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks a lot for coming on. We really appreciate it. Awesome. Sounds great. See you guys soon. Yeah, thanks so much. Good to see you. Take care, Joyce. Thank right. you. Right. Bye.